of. We are going to jump into the next three chapters that Paul outlines his instructions for the Corinthian church to fix their already haywire practices of the spiritual gifts. We are not, and this is maybe one little uh, apology for those who would expect one thing. We're not, we don't have a topical series. This is not the way I would structure or go through a, a series on the spiritual gifts. But as we open the word expositionally, I think what we're going to have from Paul is uh, by the Holy Spirit. I know that what we're going to have from Paul by the Holy Spirit is the best order and the best manner of addressing this issue in the context of, of Corinth and also especially in the context of a real, living, local church. Uh, it's not simply going to be a, a theoretical, theological discourse on the spiritual gifts that might go into all of the uh, ways that all of Scripture will speak of all of those gifts. We're especially going to focus on what Paul talks about in, in, uh, in the, this letter, in chapter 12, 13, and 14. But uh, having said that, let's start in verse 1 as is our custom. We plan to go through to the bottom of verse 11. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the living God. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. And to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Men, as we start jumping in here, we need to realize what Paul says in verse 1 right from the beginning. I do not want you to be ignorant, or as my version said, I don't want you to be uninformed. Some of us would much prefer to disagree with Paul there and say, in fact, church is just a lot safer, a lot less weird, attracts a lot less kooks if we do just remain in a state of, uh, of, of, of lack of talking about, don't address, and don't try and practice these things called the spiritual gifts. The ladies don't bring their ribbons. The dudes don't try and do cymbal dancing up the back. And guys don't fall on the ground and shake. We can just avoid all of that if we just stay uh, ignorant of the spiritual gifts, cut Corinthians 12 through 14 out of the Bible, keep 13 for marriages, that's it. But Paul believes in the Word of God and its ability to instruct, guide, and lead a church, even as messed up as the Corinthian church, in the matters of the spiritual gifts. Maybe your background, maybe, I think a lot of us are sort of coming uh, from, from this way, maybe your background or experience has been one 
that has been right in the guts of the wildest and strangest, even the most blasphemous spiritual um, uh, uh, behaviors and activities. Uh, maybe you've, you've been there in, in fire tunnels and you've been to the conferences and you've spoken all kinds of prophecies or had them over you. Uh, maybe you, you've, you've been to the Christian cookie shop, uh, cookie shop, fortune cookie conferences when it's basically just that vague prophecy spoken over you. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to pretend to have been uh, experienced all of it. I've experienced a, 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 enough to know that it's tempting to veer away from this sort of topic. Like an Arminian might do a, a, a skip Romans 9 to 11. As a Calvinist, I just want to skip 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's way more comfortable. But do we believe, Paul, when he says, I would not have you ignorant? The solution is theological education and application. Paul believes that. Uh, maybe you've come, you know, you've come to your own online study, book reading, Bible study, and you've come to a pretty good conclusion on where the gifts stand, but you would prefer that others be ignorant because they can't be trusted. They're going to go weird in the local church if we talk about it. Or do you wrongly assume, and maybe going towards our, our charismatic mates here, maybe do you assume that experience equals a lack of ignorance? If that was the case, of course, Paul wouldn't have to write to the Corinthians. They've got all the experience. And and it's often the case that people might, might feel like because of their Pentecostal background, they've got an uncle who, who, uh, whose church is crazy, they've seen all, all of it there, they've been to their conferences, or maybe you've just practiced it yourself, and so you would say, I don't need a big teaching series, I've experienced it. That's not the case. Our experience determines and leads nothing in the Christian life. We, we submit it all to the Word of God, and we are always uh, uh, wanting and desirous of more teaching, more understanding. So, so I think that, that there would be very few uh, who would come to what Paul would say here and not have enormous amounts learned, enormous amounts of uh, direction and uh, theological uh, explanation given that would not be learning. So we all come as humble students and we say, Lord, if your word says it, it is good. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's not be ignorant. Here's the background of Corinthians. Okay, look at chapter 2. This church, Paul speaks to them saying... Uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 2. Sorry, don't, don't go all the way back. Chapter 12, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. He's going to start talking about here, and I want to address first true spirituality. Then we're going to talk about the, the source of spiritual gifts later, and then we'll start getting into the specifics of the charismata as our third point. But first, let's start comparing uh, the way that Paul compares true spirituality with false spirituality. And he's going to compare paganism to Judaism that denies Christ to real Christian spirit-given gifts. So at verse 2, he says, when you were pagans, remember Corinthian church, mostly pagans, mostly in that Roman province of Corinth with all of the temples that they had and all of the strange ways of worshiping as pagans do. It says, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Led astray. Even in chaotic, pagan, demon-worshipping religion, there is some order. And it's always an order that is a direction that is well-planned away from structure, order, truth, knowledge, and, 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 and Christ. Paul says that one way to just uh, diagnose or explain the whole of paganism is being led astray into chaos. And he says here that you were led astray, that is, by demons and to demons, 
Particularly, though, he's referencing that, 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 that pagan cultic worship service, which was a, a like high point in the year, sort of their, their Easter holiday. Everyone would take holidays in the Corinthian city, large as it was, would all come and partake in this big day of the year when they would walk through this big uh, 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 ceremony through the streets and they would give their offerings and burn their incense and do all of this and they would end up standing at attention in worship underneath the statues of the idols in their temple. I think Paul is referencing this. And he said, when you were pagans, you were, as a whole city, as a church, you used to be the people led astray in this procession that was symbolic of your life. Led astray into chaos, into disorder, into sin, into immorality, and you were in worship to mute idols. Mute idols is a frequent uh, insult that God uses against Idols of paganism and Gentiles in the Old Testament. I wonder if you remember any of those in the, in the, uh, in the prophets of Isaiah or, or even in Psalm 115 when, uh, when, when, when they're writing about pagans and Gentiles and saying they worship gods who have eyes but don't see. They have mouths but don't speak. They have ears but don't hear. They have hands but do not help. They're talking about them as, and what is, what, what is the point when they do that in the prophets and in the Psalms is to point out other people have gods, but they're entirely unhelpful for the lived experience of the human. They are just there to get some kind of worship, but they're pointless, useless, and powerless. And Paul is contrasting here the, the mute idols or the dumb idols with the living, breathing, speaking, acting, serving, energizing, activating spirit of God who is unmistakably at work with his people. That's the comparison he's making. You were led astray in chaos and immorality and you were led to the worship of things that were of no help, no involvement and no direction in your life. But you are now Christians. This is if you go and uh, open up to Rome, we're not going to go there now, but if you have a read through Romans 1, this is just the, 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 the chronology of paganism, of both individuals, nations, people groups, whatever. As there is a rejection of Christ and a worship of the created order, it always leads to further chaos, further immorality, and further stupidity. What, what Paul will call the futility of mind, the debasement of the mind. It, it removes the most basic philosophical understandings and just jumps headlong into sin, human sacrifice, uh, sexual occultic practices, violence against women and children, brutality, hatred, lying, and wars. That's, that's the direction that paganism takes. Paul's saying, you remember what that was like in both ignorance and idol worship in immorality. <clears throat> Next clarification he makes, or, or comparison, I should say, comparison he makes in, is in verse 3. This is what the Jews would say. There, there's a little bit of contention about this, whether or not this was a phrase, what Paul's about to quote, whether this was something that a, a so-called prophet was saying in the Corinthian church. I don't think that's true for this reason. In verse 3 we read, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. It's clarifying, just in case Christians needed to hear it, that's not what the Holy Spirit does. If you're standing up in a worship service to Jesus and saying, I think Jesus is cursed, that's wrong. It's a, that, that, that's, a, that's a one 
one answer, multiple choice question. Of course they knew that. I, I think that Paul would spend more time on that if that was actually going on. I think that what he's doing is, with other commentators saying this, I, I think that he's saying, comparing what was often said in synagogues. It was said in the synagogues of the day in the first century. They have it written down in historical uh, artifacts that the Jews used to either say as a confession or just remind each other, Jesus is accursed. That was their go-to answer when, when they were asked, what do you think of this Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus is accursed. Not giving him the, the divine title of Christ or Messiah or Lord. They're just saying this Jesus guy of Nazareth, who everybody is talking about, he's accursed. God proved that he's accursed because he was hung on a tree and died there under the Roman crucifixion. That's, that's Old Testament symbolism for somebody being cursed by God. The Jews who would speak, you know, boast of having the oracles of God, speaking in the spirit of God, being led by Yahweh, they would say, Jesus is accursed. So Paul is contrasting here where, where you used to be pagans, maybe some of you were Jews, or at least the Jews go on saying this, no one says in the Holy Spirit, Jesus is accursed. There's the comparison. You're not led through chaos and disorder and into immorality. You're not led to blaspheme uh, as the Jews do Jesus. You are, as the end of verse 3 shows us, you are in the Holy Spirit if you are fulfilling this requirement. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The goal of the Spirit, the goal of the Holy Spirit in the church is to bring glory to Jesus. By this, by this most basic, this is the very first Christian confession, Jesus is Lord. Three words and it says it all. Jesus is Lord, meaning he's God. He's the sovereign. He's become incarnate for us and for our salvation. He lived the perfect life. He taught authoritatively. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He fulfilled the Old Testament law. He died in our place and for our sin as a penal, substitutionary, bloodletting atonement under God. He remained dead. He came back from death to provide and promise eternal life to anybody that believes in him. He walked around, did more miracles and proclamation for 40 days. He was ascended then back up into heaven, sat down on the physical throne, David's throne next to the Father. And from there he rules and reigns to pour out forgiveness and repentance to anybody that, that, that has been chosen by God, awakened by the Spirit. That's Jesus. He's Lord. Yes, he was accursed under God for our sin, Jews, but then he was alive, proven to be the anointed Holy One of God. That's Jesus. And that's all wrapped up in this statement, Jesus is Lord. So that no other spirit will ever be manifesting in a people or in a religion a high uh, a belief of or worship to Jesus as Lord, as the scriptures mean it. Where that is happening, that is uniquely the work of the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, that will be the most fundamental, uh, uh, strong sense of the congregation, of the people. The, the defining mark of the Spirit's work is glorifying Christ in his lordship. Jesus said this of the Holy Spirit. He says, when I go, I'll send the Spirit, and when he comes, he will glorify me. That's John 16, verse 14, if you wanted some reference. So where paganism or Judaism, or when, when some of those mindsets slip into the church of paganism and Judaism, uh, where they lead to chaotic immorality and idolatrous actions, or just blasphemy to Christ, 
The Spirit's work glorifies Jesus through orderly, rational, heartfelt confession of Christians that Jesus is Lord and a following practice of life. That's what the Spirit does. This means, and this is really where we lay the foundation to start talking about the spiritual gifts. This is why servitude and servant-heartedness is such a, 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 a strong scent or a strong characteristic of and manifestation of the Spirit in people. Because what he manifests is that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean about us? That means we're servants. He's Lord, we're servants. If he's Lord, as the Spirit tells us he is, and as the Scripture shows us he is, then what that means is he ought to be served. So the first thing that the Holy Spirit brings into the heart of a person that he's going to gift mightily with his miraculous and powerful gifts is a heart that's willing to serve. Where, where that is humble, where that is real, where that is open to the Lord's using of you, whether or not you know what spiritual gifts you have, whether you know or not what calling you've got on your life in terms of ministries, when you have a, a people that are together, each one bending the knee to Jesus, knowing he is Lord, there will be service one to another and to Jesus all over the place. That needs to be our number one conviction. If I have the Holy Spirit, I will serve Jesus with joy and duty. It's a duty because he's Lord. It's a joy because he's Jesus. So giving glory to Jesus and service from us is what the Holy Spirit does. But look now at verse 4 to 7. Verse 4 to 7. And this is really where we see the, the source of the spiritual gifts. <clears throat> the source of the spiritual gifts. And his main point is that even though the spiritual gifts will differ in what they look like and how they work, they do not differ in their importance or in their source. They're all from the Spirit. Let's read this, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. His point is here that, that value, and, and he's going to say this in, in verse 7. Let's just actually read that. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Holy Spirit uh, set, uh, uh, regenerates you. You have faith. Jesus uh, gives to you his righteousness. The Father justifies you, adopts you, and sends the Spirit into your heart in filling you. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's, the, that's the, the, the moment that the Spirit comes into you is at salvation. When he comes, he gifts everybody with some kind of unique and alike way to, to manifest his power, manifest what he uh, is in the church to do, which is glorify Jesus. Each one of us have a manifestation of the Spirit of Jesus. We're going to see in the coming weeks that we're called the, the body part in the body of Jesus. This is so significant. The honor and the privilege of this cannot be overemphasized. We have the manifestation of the Spirit in each one of us. But as verse 4, 5, and 6 shows us, there's an equality between, the, uh, between each of us regardless of which gifts we have. So verse 4 tells us it's the same Spirit giving them. Verse 5 tells us it's the same Lord being served. And verse 6 tells us it's the same God who is empowering all of them. 
The reason this becomes so important for us to know before we, we really dig into what all those gifts were and what Paul explains, the reason Paul's saying this at the outset is because in Corinth there was, there was a, a particular preference and desire of and a showing off of certain spiritual gifts. It was the ones that were more spectacular or at least could be faked to look pretty spectacular. Let's just not pretend there's not people faking spiritual gifts out there. Uh, uh, and, and so Paul knows that in, in Corinth, people love and delight in showing off their gift of tongues, especially. That they were able to uh, utilize uh, the spirit to uh, go into some kind of trance and speak in some kind of what we call glossolalia, which is, uh, which is a, a, a word that's made up for theology on, on this point, glossolalia, just the, 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 the unraveling of speech that is unintelligible and un, un, understandable. And it's just going out faster than I can hold it back. And it's the Spirit doing something. And everybody's got to listen to me. Or we'll all do it at once. And whoever does it loudest and most impressive, they've got the Spirit. And so it was this pageant or this, this sideshow of showing off who's got the Spirit the most. The, the tongues, that, that gift of speaking in that way was, was the real preferred, the sought after, the impressive gift of the Spirit. And it was marked by this, uh, the, like we said, the, the ecstasy. Don't, don't miss that. As we go through and especially hit into chapter 4, uh, sorry, chapter 14, we're going to see that Paul is making the point that those who are utilizing the spiritual gifts, whatever they are, prophecy or tongues, they are in their right mind. They know what they're doing. Because he's saying, if somebody starts, then you stop and only do so many times, uh, certain people at a time. There's just no room for people saying, the spirit overtook me, I couldn't help it, I was in a trance, and, and here I am, rules don't apply. Paul, Paul's saying, uh, he will say how wrong that is, but we just need to get a, get a glimpse for how ugly these church services were. We've already established from chapter 1 through 11, you come in and you sit in your corners, depending on which teacher you like and whose theological argument and personality you drift to. So now there's divisions in the church. And, and as it starts, some people start gossiping about and preaching against Paul because he's a piece of work. So, so he addressed that. And, and some people really don't like all of this cross language. So they're like the theological liberal, liberals today. And they're getting up and, and more just talking about how God wants to help us. And, and, and you know, let, let, let's do a sermon series on, on felt needs. And so you got that going on. And then, then you got people suing each other. People serving maybe on the same worship ministry are suing each other for money, trying to bankrupt other people so that they can, uh, they, they can have all of their money. And then you've got the guy over here who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and the other guy who's just come from the brothel, fresh, just doing his pants up as he comes through the door. And then you've got this guy over here who's, who's getting literally drunk on the communion wine before we start so that when we come together again, all the wine's gone and, and the fat guy's eaten all of the food. And, and for somehow, the, they're confused why God would be killing some of them as they come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then on the back of all of that, Paul's now going to say, and once the music kicks off, everybody's just screaming out in the most ecstatic, pagan way that they can, trying to prove that they're spiritual the Bible doesn't have a place of authority among you. Shut up in the name of the Lord. And he starts handing out order and he starts handing out uh, explanations of how this needs to be fixed. So it's a mess of a place. Can you imagine being in there? And you don't have the option to just go, you know what? There's another Reformed First Baptist Church of Corinth five minutes away. I'm going there. This is the one church in the city. You're not here. You don't have a church. 
let's just realize that the other option was never to just stay at home and not go to church. <laughs> Goodness me, it's better to be at an unideal church, which is the only church that exists, than to be somewhere that is not among the people of God. And yet they're there. And they're watching all of this happen, and they're all partaking, and it's an absolute mess that is very difficult to see how this is bringing glory to Jesus. Well, <clears throat> let's just, uh, before we start jumping into, I keep on saying that, I've, this is just a massive, the, the, the title is Primer on the Spiritual Gifts, so uh, this is just a big introduction sermon. Um, one of the things I want to do is outline the three main views on the spiritual gifts that are around today. I think, think this will be helpful so you know where I stand and where, you know, where different people might be coming from. <clears throat> First one is, don't put your hand up, well, cessationists don't, but there's a group called cessationists, and, and you can hear in that word the word cease, right, cessation. Their main point, their main theological position, and I've been one of these guys before, is that the spiritual gifts, particularly the, the miraculous ones, so we're talking tongues, prophecy, of course apostleship, miracles and healing, that those stopped, they, they came to a cessation at the end of about the first century or, or thereabouts once all of the apostles died off because they were particularly apostolic signs. And the point of miracles, in their view, the, the ultimate and main point is to pr prove or point or confirm the, the, the prophets or the apostles bringing heavenly revelation. The point of miracles was pretty much just to point to them as proven by God. Look at the miracles they're doing. They are proven by God. And therefore, in their uh, theology, as the, the canon of Scripture came to a close, as all of the revelation from God was given, there was no more need to confirm the messengers. And so, of course, they believe that, therefore, at the end of the first century, some, of, some people give a little bit more time for that to happen, but they say around about then, tongues, prophecy, and healings, and miracles, uh, as far as they were being done by gifted people, passed away and ceased by the sovereign spirit's choosing. If that is the case, I, do, uh, I see a, a, an error here in how we can pursue or obey chapter 14, verse 39, which says, My brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. There is, we're we're going to make a good argument tonight, but, uh, but, but, but having held that position, what, what it, it doesn't, it's not able to do is take the, the full scope of everything Paul says and commands and start obeying all of them, uh, even as they would apply to more than just the Corinthian situation. There's, there's a, a, a bracketed and, I think, kneecapped ability to exegete all of Scripture in faithfulness in that position. Though, if you are a cessationist, you'll find yourself well at home here. You might not even have realized that this wasn't a cessationist church. Uh, the people are welcome to come, be members, serve here, of course, if that is your theological tendency. Second, of course, there is uh, Pentecostalism. Now, a lot of people... A lot of people start confusing Pentecostals and Charismatics. And there's a pretty important difference, and we're going we're to get to it. But, but basically, we, we take number two here, Pentecostals. They believe basically the opposite of cessationism. Not only are all of the gifts still operational for today, but also all of the offices are as well. Meaning, not only do we have miracles being done, healings being done, tongues being spoken, and prophecies being given, we also have apostles in the church and prophets, as in like an office of a person in a church whose job it is to be downloading revelation from God. Uh, one of the distinguishing 
theological markers of a Pentecostal is that they believe that in, in what is called, it's going to be the second, uh, or the, the baptism of the Spirit, which is when the Holy Spirit comes into you, infills you, empowers you for ministry, and that happens in response to prayer as a moment after your salvation. So they will have the position that there are some people who are uh, born again, who love Jesus, who are fighting sin, who are reading their Bible, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. They believe that the key sign of this or the key proof that somebody has been infilled by the Spirit is that they in that moment speak in tongues and can ongoingly speak in tongues. I was involved in a Pentecostal church when I was about 18 and here's just to, to show you the depth of... <clears throat> anyway, I was 18 and, uh, and I was asked to go and plant a church. Uh, there you go. So it so wasn't a lot. Of, now, you know me now and you wouldn't even ask me to do that. You're reluctantly here. So, so they asked me at 18, they wanted to send me plant a church and I was at a leaders meeting and they realized that I can't speak in tongues because I was quiet during the, the common tongues time of the leadership and that uh, they just couldn't send out a guy who even though you know, he seemed to know a bit of his Bible, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And that was really the beginning of my descent from Pentecostal theology to hardcore cessationism and then later on, a couple of years later, into what we will call reformed charismatic theology. But anyway, back on uh, uh, Pentecostalism, they also hold what is called the five-fold ministry. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you don't even realize this is wrong, uh, but they, they look at, at Ephesians 4 and they say in, in that passage, Paul says that God gave apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and that they say every good and biblical church will have all of those in every church. That's how we see revival. So every church needs to be able to point to their apostle, Benny, their prophet, Joel, their, their teacher and pastor and evangelist. And, and if you want to see how, how I would break that text down, just go back to our church series, on the, the series called The Church on our YouTube channel, and I break that down, the fivefold ministry, show why it's quite wrong. Uh, pastor teachers is one phrase, so it's actually just the job of the elder, the pastoring teacher, the teaching pastor. That, that's all that that means. And, and Paul is showing a historical building of the church, not each individual church, but that God gave the apostles and then, then the prophets and then people evangelized and now people pastor and teacher. That's, that's all that he's saying. Anyway, Pentecostals hold to a five-fold ministry. And they, they, it's hard to see how there is not a direct reflection on the Corinthian era in Pentecostalism today. Now, we've got Pentecostal friends, we've got Pentecostal brothers and sisters. They're, they're in the faith. However, the, the error is clear. You can't go into this theology and not end up with the haves and the have-nots, the people who have the Spirit and those that don't, which is the error of the Corinthians. That they were saying that those who speak in tongues are mighty spiritual, those who don't are quite carnal and less powerful and less impressive. And I don't see how that is not exactly at play in Pentecostal theology. Those who have the Spirit speak in tongues. Those who don't, well, it's just great to have you among us, and I'm um, sorry that you don't get to, uh, you know, play with the big boys. Anyway, these guys are the ones with all the ribbons. If you've been in a, a church and the guy up front has super tight jeans and the lights are going crazy and there's Mercedes parked up front, you're probably in a Pentecostal church. Uh, they have all the hair gel and they, they often have handheld mics. What is it with preachers and handheld mics where there's perfectly good lapels, it's just cooler, those, uh, that's a key sign that they're probably a Pentecostal church. Uh, and they have, or, or it's, they, they go right down the other end where there's, there's just the, the Sith Lord, Force Awakens guys swinging their jacket around, people falling over, 
getting the holy gift of laughter, all of that, what we do believe is nonsense leading to division and pride. That's not where we land. Rather, number three, charismatic or reformed charismatic theology. This will teach and, and we'll be uh, explaining as we're going from this point of view that apostles and the apostolic office is completed. There's no more apostles today. Only those named and chosen by Christ and filled with the Spirit for writing Scripture had that, that title of capital A Apostle. We've spoken about that frequently also. We believe that there is a finished canon of Scripture. It's not added to, it's not changed, it's not edited, and it cannot have an equal. It is the norm that norms everything. Everything is compared to Scripture. It is our authority. However, it is that Scripture, which we hold as sola scriptura, as our authority, it is that Scripture which commands us to pursue the spiritual gifts. And so we have to be able, in our theology, balance between pursuing the gifts and not being distracted from Scripture. There must be a biblical way to do this if Paul's commanding it and lived it out. This is my conviction. <clears throat> we also, because we're reformed, we have the solid rock confidence that God is sovereign in his giving, in his gifting, in his empowering and what he works, who he heals, who he saves, what he accomplishes. It's all up to God. We humbly bend our knee. And so we're not puppeting God with our prayers, with our demands, with what we think he needs to do because we have certain spiritual gifts. We also believe wholeheartedly that every Christian who is born again has the Holy Spirit. Firstly, because regeneration precedes faith. You need the Holy Spirit to have faith, but then the infilling of the Spirit happens in the same instant because Paul will say in Romans 8 verse 9 that if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are not a son of God. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not in Christ. So there is not that dichotomy that we should make. <clears throat> and only some speak in tongues. We're also Reformed Charismatic because we believe that this is consistent with the Reformed Confessions, especially here, the 1689 Confession of Faith. This is probably where I get the most pushback from my uh, cessationist, Calvinistic, confessional mates. They say, you cannot be Reformed and hold to uh, some kind of charismatic, open-for-the-gifts position. Uh, the, the position is, the, the explanation they'll say is that the, the guys who wrote the Confessions, like the Reformers and the Puritans, they had no room for this ongoing revelation. They railed against, they fought to, uh, blood, tooth, and nail against those Anabaptists and other type people who in their day were just flurrying with the frenzy of new revelation from God, literally walking naked because the Spirit told them to do it, taking over towns, that got your attention, taking over towns because God said the kingdom's coming and he's going to resurrect our leader back from the dead. They fought against that kind of nonsensical, chaotic immorality that, that God was speaking to people in that way. And yet, can you... Uh, Take a travel with me back in time. <clears throat> I want to look at Richard Baxter, Samuel Rutherford, and even the confessions themselves to say the Puritans had. Maybe the, the, let's not pretend they were in our day and age and, and they're a part of this argument. But when we look at their writings, we can see that they had room in their theology for God speaking in ways, not over Scripture or without Scripture, but gifted by the Spirit to people hearing, seeing, having prophecies. <clears throat> Samuel Rutherford was a guy who uh, helped write the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. So if, here's, here's the argument, it doesn't mean that he's an authority. 
It means that if you cannot be a confessional reformed guy and believe in fresh revelation from God, then they didn't vet their guys very well who wrote the confessions. I think those guys give us a good idea of what was allowed, what was um, uh, allowable, what was believed among the people of the day. Sammy Rutherford used to write, and he gives instructions on how we should weigh up prophecies and fresh revelations. He believed that Wycliffe, John Huss, Martin Luther, John Knox, and many other preachers now dead in England had the gifts of, of being spoken to by God and, uh, and hearing that revelation. But that's extremely uh, relevant, I think, in this uh, discussion. Richard Baxter, he has a, a book where he's writing all about how to live the Christian life, and, and he says... He's another reformed uh, Puritan. He says, It's possible that God may make new revelations to particular persons about their duties, events, any matter of fact, about their insubordination to Scripture, you know, convicting them for disobeying Scripture, either by inspiration or vision or aberration or voice. Uh, uh, and, and he has never told us that he will never do such a thing. And then he goes on to explain about how we should measure up such prophecies. So, so, so I think it's, it's perfectly consistent with, if we're accurately historical, to be a Reformed Baptist like we all should be and hold to an openness on the spiritual gifts called the charismatic position. The London Baptist Confession of Faith says in uh, chapter 1, verse 10, it says that the Word of God is authoritative over the decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits. That's language that in their day they were writing with the understanding people have these, these spiritual encounters or revelations and they need to be subjected to Scripture. It's in our confession. I'm pretty confidently reformed, charismatic. This is our position. <clears throat> Here's four points that I think is usually the, 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 the uh, 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 fighting against or the, uh, the disagreement with or the problems that people have with charismatic beliefs. And I'm going to come from the, from the cessationist point of view here. They, they would say, prophecy ignores the Old Testament standards. If you go back in the Old Testament and read Deuteronomy 18, you see some pretty high standards for prophets. That if you say the wrong thing once, if you prophesy the wrong thing once, you're dead. None of this, sometimes I get it, sometimes I'm a little bit off, sometimes I realize it was the curry I ate for lunch that was giving me that dream, my bad. There's no room for that. You've got to die or be excommunicated in New Testament age if you give a prophecy and it's not accurate. You know, what this fails to realize is that the standards of Old Testament prophetic assessment is applied not to New Testament prophecy, which is different in the New Covenant, but is applied to the New, New Covenant equivalent of prophets, which is apostles. It's the prophets of the Old Testament who wrote Scripture, therefore were held to that standard. And it's the apostles in the New Testament who write Scripture, and therefore were held to that standard. We hear a similar thing from Paul in Galatians 1, when he says, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let God curse him. Consider him cut out. So those apply to the apostles and less so to new covenant prophetic utterances. <clears throat> Or they might say, prophecy undermines the uniqueness of the apostles. The argument being, you know, the apostles were the ones who prophesied. They had the revelation from God. Now it's just all in Scripture, no more revelation. What this fails to realize is that even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, uh, we have uh, the apostles were prophesying, but then also we have other prophets who were not apostles 
prophesying. We have some who revealed mysteries of heaven that went into our doctrine of, uh, in Scripture, and some of them were simply ongoing prophecies about situations and people. In fact, it was Paul's, uh, Peter's understanding on the day of Pentecost, explaining the, the prophecy in the tongues. He's saying, this is Joel 2 coming to fulfillment. The new covenant age when all people will prophesy, man, woman, young, old, free, slave, we will all have the Spirit to be able to bring prophecy to the church. So, no, it doesn't undermine the uniqueness of the apostles. Only they wrote scripture. Thirdly, we might feel prophecy undermines the sufficiency of scripture. If we're still receiving some kind of new revelation from God today, doesn't that just uh, make us close our Bible and say we don't need this, it has holes in it, it has things that it just can't do for us, we need additional revelation. That is a very important point to make and a place to catch ourselves on. We need not to make that error, as if God needs to supplement some errors or some, some lack that he's left us with. But rather, that, that just as, well, we need to ask the question, that Scripture is sufficient? Absolutely. Sufficient for what? Sufficient for what? Because in that great proof text that, uh, of Paul speaking to Timothy, saying that Scripture is sufficient. It's all that is needed by the man of God. Why? Because the man of God can take it explain it, apply it, and preach it. So we could also ask the question, is, is teaching, is the man of God, is a pastoral office, doesn't that do error to the sufficiency of Scripture? Because if the Bible is all that we need, then we don't need people to explain it. But that, of course, would be a misunderstanding. And no one says that. Uh, just believe it's an inconsistency. It is sufficient to be the sole authoritative authority Authoritative authority. Let's just double up and say it again. It's authoritative. It's the sole king in the church is the word of God. And yet, and yet, there is room where in subjection to the word of God, God might speak not to give new doctrines, not to give new uh, 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 contrasting or contradictory messages, but simply to lead, to encourage, to console, to to show us ministry opportunities or, or things like this, point us in directions of prayer. This is what we'll see back when we get into chapter 14. Well, lastly, some people feel like if New Testament prophecy is not 100% accurate all of the time, then that undermines God's word. I mean, if God speaks, God speaks. There's no room for error. But we need to realize that in Old Testament and New Testament time, not all of God's speakings are canonical. This is going to be a very important word as we think about this topic. Canonical, meaning not all of it is going to find itself into the written canon of Scripture. This means that not, and only the revelation of God that finds its way into the written canon of Scripture is authoritative for all time and all people. There are prophets who would speak and not all of their writings are in the Scripture. Meaning that, that the very same inspiration, some of that was utilized just for the people of the time, just for the day that it was spoken, just for the people of that locale, and that are not authoritative in God's revelation for all people. Even in the New Testament age, this is, this is clear. Not everything the apostles said by inspiration, not everything the prophets said by utterance of God was written down because there are two levels of revelation. The canonical, which is authoritative for everybody, and the non-canonical, which is to be weighed up, assessed, and heard by the people of God, but not believed 
entirely until it's proven by Scripture or it's, it's found to not contradict Scripture. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29, when Paul says this type of prophecy, not coming from the apostles with authority that's in the Word of God, you are never told in Scripture, take open the Bible, see what you like, assess it, think hard about it and see whether or not you agree that it's from God. Not the case. Paul says, if you don't believe what I'm saying to you, you're accursed. I don't care. I'm not going to ask you if, if there's something else I can say to, to please you. It's, it's the word of God. It's authority. And yet, other things, Paul will say, take those prophecies spoken of God and submit them to assessment. Weigh them, he's going to say in chapter 14, verse 29. There has to be, in our theology, room for these two levels of prophecy that which is authoritative for all time and that which needs to be weighed and tested before it is received. Let's read again verse 7, <clears throat> just as we close out. I had a plan to go through all of those gifts tonight as well that we see down to the verse 11, and we just won't get... I know you wanted to hear about miracles and prophecy, and I'll do a miracle. You want to see a miracle? I'll finish the sermon before 50 minutes. That'll be a miracle for the night, and then we'll wrap up. So verse 7, let's finish there. To each is given... I want you to hear this over yourself and for yourself. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You need to ask yourself, what do you do? That as you do it, you find people are constantly built up, constantly encouraged. Or maybe it's that they're getting saved through that, the ultimate way that the church is built up. Maybe you need to ask yourself, what, what gifting have you seen, maybe the beginning of? You've, you've seen in germinal form, this has happened before, I, I want to see it more again. I, my encouragement to you as we go through these chapters is to pray wholeheartedly and zealously for them, that they would come to, fru to full fruition and maturity. Have you been turned off by bad experiences surrounding the gifts? I ask you, I compel you and command you from the Word of God to take it to the Lord but do not despise his giftings. <clears throat> maybe you need to get on mission. Maybe, maybe the reason or, or, or the, com the compelling command that you need to hear from Scripture tonight is simply Paul saying that the gifts are not given for pageantry, for showing off, and for spiritual showcasing. They are given for mission. So the people who are in love with Jesus, serving Jesus, in the church of Jesus, are then empowered by his Spirit with the gifts of Jesus. We should not be waiting at home, sitting still, not going to the front lines and then asking God for all of the choice weapons, all of the best armory. Rather, we need to start sprinting, trusting he'll meet us there and gift us as we go. It's, it's, it's better to serve wholeheartedly, not knowing what gift you have, and to find out later than to sit at home, waiting, just attending and consuming a church until Jesus shows you what gift you have. And lastly, just as we close out here, all of this speak, speaking of the gifts, I want to ask you rather if you have received that greatest gift, which is Jesus, salvation, repentance from sin. This is the, the great call that while God gives his spirit to, to, to move the mission forwards and to glorify Christ, the, the, the first call, the greatest gift that he gave was Jesus to the sinful world, to you and I, sinners who have rebelled against God's standards and earned for ourselves Hell, destruction, and condemnation to us is given grace because Jesus died our death. We're given life because Jesus rose from the, rose from the grave into eternal life and gives that to us. We're given a, a royal name in adoption because he's now seated 
seating on the throne and invites us to himself. So wherever and whoever you are, if you are not yet trusting Jesus for salvation, not yet being born again, then turn away from your sin which will and has damned you and turn to Christ who can and will save you out of the great love that he has been sent to show from the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have sent your Son to us, that though he was killed by human hands, he was, he was in fact crushed by your will in order to bring about justification for sinners. We thank you, Lord, that you gave your Son, that he has made clean and he has forgiven and he has made righteous many sinners. We thank you that we are among them. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to give your spirit, that he would clarify and point us to Jesus, that he would guide us through the word of God and give us understanding, and that he would gift us for your mission. So that as we learn more, we can, we can pick up our, our momentum, pick up our, our weaponry and serve you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would save souls. Whoever we are and wherever we are, whatever we've done, Lord, would you bring them into your kingdom, forgive them of their sins, and all this to the glorious name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Amen.